Good morning. At least it's morning when we're recording this. Welcome to the audio of Theological Equipping class. This class was meant to be recorded or just, I guess, done a couple weeks ago, but our building lost air conditioning on a Sunday morning, and so we canceled it. So we're recording it so that we still have it as a resource online, although I am speaking to uh, an empty room. But this semester uh, in, in Theological Equipping, one of the things we've been essentially doing, the theme of this semester has been walking through our new mission statement as a church. Our new mission statement is the Parkway Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ who delight in him, display his love to one another, and declare him to the world. And so those three Ds are meant to be the three, meant to represent the three most primary relationships of our life. Our life with God, delight, our life with one another, uh, the, the church that we've covenanted with, uh, displaying Jesus' love to one another, and then de- our, our relationship to the world, declaring Jesus to the world. And so we've been walking through these three Ds. Each lesson has kind of been on a, a practical way to live out the delight in him, displaying his love to one another, and declaring him to the world. And so today we're going to hit that middle display, that second D, display. How do we display his love to one another as a church? And so what, what, how do we have a mark of who we are as a church that just displays the supernatural life of Jesus being in our midst? And we're going to talk about specifically how to be a community of prayer, how to be a church that is marked by prayer. Okay, so we we'll have four kind of sections we'll walk through today. Number one, the nature of prayer. Before we talk about how do we actually be a community of prayer, just nailing down what is prayer. So the nature of prayer. Number two, The church as a community of prayer, we'll look at the scriptures and how this is central to the identity of the church. The church is a community of prayer. Number three, what to pray for as a community of prayer. And number four, how. How do we actually do it? How to be a community of prayer. So let's do that first one, the nature of prayer. So in talking about being a community of prayer, the question we need to answer first is, what is prayer? Right? That is the the probably most important thing we need to answer first, and although you give a, a lot of definitions, I guess the most simple, boiled down definition would just be speaking to God, talking to uh, the living God who hears us. But we really can't really understand the nature of prayer unless we first answer the question, you know, who is God and who are we? Which when you first crack open the pages of scripture, you see God is the creator of the universe. He's the only one who has eternally existed. And we, (laughs) quite different, are made from dirt. We're actually created by him. And Hebrews and Colossians would both tell us, we're not only created by him, we're sustained by him. Meaning that if at any moment God chose to stop holding us together, we would literally cease to exist. So he didn't just create us and then take his hands off. He is constantly sustaining us, giving us our next breath, sustaining our existence. And so with that background, who God is and who we are, prayer isn't just a nice conversation you get to have with God if you want to. Rather, prayer, speaking with God, becomes absolutely essential to who we are. It becomes a vital necessity. It becomes as important as your very breath. And so I want to lay out three really key elements of prayer that we'll see just kind of tied throughout this entire talk. Number one, 
Prayer as fellowship with God, as communion with God. Prayer as being essential to your relationship with God. Again, you were made by him and for him. You weren't just made uh, so that God could observe us, observe us scattering over the, all over the world, or just so that God could have subjects. You were made for him, to walk with God and commune with God in the cool of the day. Jesus is going to uh, teach us to pray, our Father. Right? This, this very essential to the nature of prayer is this communion with God, this fellowship with God. So that's the first, the prayer as fellowship with God. The second is prayer as an expression of your dependence on God. Again, it's, it's like your breath. He's created us and sustains us. We can do nothing apart from him. Absolutely nothing apart from him, including exist. And so we are desperately dependent on him. That's why we pray. We pray because if we don't have him sustaining us, giving us grace, giving us uh, power, we, we can do nothing apart from him. And then the third thing, so the third reason, third element of prayer would be prayer as power for the mission that he's called us to. So again, we've, made, we've been made by him and for him, for communion with him, but we've also been given a purpose by him. We see Adam and Eve are created and then they're sent out. They're given a creation mandate, right? Fill the earth and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply. Take dominion over this creation. And we see Jesus similarly sends us out in Matthew 28 with this great commission. Go, fill the earth and preach the gospel and make disciples all for my glory. And all of those things, because we're desperately dependent, because we were made for him, and now because we've been given a creation mandate and a great commission from King Jesus, we need power for that mission because we can do nothing apart from him. So that third element, that very important element, is prayer is a way to uh, access the power of God, if you will, for the mission of God. So prayer is essential for us to function as we work made to in fellowship with God, dependent on God, and with power for the mission of God. And I start with that because anytime we hear a lesson on prayer, one of the things we typically think is, oh yeah, that's this thing that I should do that I don't often do. And so I hear a lesson on prayer, I feel bad, and so I try to pray more. And it's just this kind of discipline that we do or don't do and we try harder to do. And I want to show us at the beginning, prayer is so much deeper than that. I want to show us, I want us to see you can't live without prayer. You were made to pray because you were made for him. You were made to pray because you were made with a purpose for his glory. So we must pray. Okay, so that's the nature of prayer. Let's look at the second thing, the church as a community of prayer. I want to, again, us, us to see the scriptures showing us this pattern. I want the scriptures to actually form how we view this subject. So, so first of all, there's two kinds of prayer. So when I say, let's pray, or give a teaching on the importance of prayer, there's two types of prayer. The first one, I think, is what we typically think when we hear about prayer. That's the prayer as kind of devotion. Prayer as your individual prayer life. So prayer uh, in your quiet time or your prayer closet, right? So your individual devoted time to prayer, kind of Matthew 6, don't pray on the street corners where everyone can see you and praise you. Rather, when you pray, close the door, pray where only your Father in heaven sees. That's great. That's biblical. We're going to have another lesson on that called How to Pray the Bible. That will be in a few weeks. That's actually not 
the, the, the subject of today's teaching. Today's teaching is about praying together with the church. So not your individual quiet time prayer life, but rather your corporate prayer life. Praying together, praying with the body of Christ. That's what this teaching is about. And I think that's actually pretty foreign to us. I think even if we're not uh, very disciplined in prayer, we all know the quiet time, individual type of prayers, but the praying together as a church, I think is a subject we, we don't often talk about. And that is something that I want the Bible to correct in our minds. I think it's saturated throughout the scriptures to, to see the church, meaning the corporate church gathering together and praying together. I want us to see that. So I want to walk through a couple things first. Let's look just at the classic, uh, how, how Jesus teaches us to pray. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So notice a couple things from that. Notice number one, this is, Jesus is expecting you to pray together. Look at all these plurals, us, give us our daily bread as we forgive our debtors, our Father. Jesus is expecting you to pray together as a church. He's expecting us to gather and pray together. And then notice in that, in that Lord's prayer, Jesus' prayer in Matthew 6, there's those three elements we talked about. Prayer is fellowship. You're saying our Father, not just our generic God, not our ruler, our Father. You see dependence. Give us our daily bread. We need you to give us our most basic provision. And then you also see the mission. Your kingdom come. Your will be done, right? But you see that not in your individual prayer life in the prayer closet during your quiet time, although Jesus does talk about that. This is us praying together, okay? So there's Jesus. Now let's just look at the history of Acts. So the book of Acts is kind of the unfolding of the church. Jesus has lived the perfect life and died on the cross and been raised victorious in the resurrection, has ascended to heaven. We see that in the four gospels. And then Acts is the Holy Spirit is sent and now the church is following Jesus' great commission and spreading all over the world. And so I want to just kind of walk through the book of Acts and several very key big movements of God. And I want to see the role that prayer plays in those big movements of God. Or to say it more specifically, I want to see what role does prayer play uh, in accomplishing the mission of God. And I'm going to argue, and I think the scriptures show, it is absolutely vital and absolutely central to the mission of God, to the gospel going forth. And let me just tell you, these are not all the passages that I could have highlighted. Just for the sake of time, I just chose a key few, but there are more than this. But let's look. Okay, so Acts 1. This is immediately after Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. Look at Acts 1. Then they, the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem on the Sabbath, day, or Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James 
uh, and Simon and Judas, the son of James, all these, so the disciples, all these were with one accord devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brother. So let me just look at that. What is the very first action the church does after Jesus ascends? They pray. Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. The first thing the church does is they gather together and they pray together corporately. Again, that shows you right out of the gate, what are the primary values for the church? Gathering together to pray. It's the first thing they do, and in this passage, it's the only thing they do. They get together and they pray. Look in the next chapter. So the Spirit falls in the book of Acts. Peter preaches his first sermon. We see the first converts coming into the church. We see this in Acts 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. So again, one of the central things, one of the central marks of the early church, we see prayer right at the center. They're devoted to it. Why? Because they know they're dependent on it. We see it just even as, again, a normal rhythm of their lives. It's like their breath because they are rightly understanding who they are, who God is, and how vital prayer is. So already we've seen they've been praying in Acts 1. The Spirit falls. Peter preaches his first sermon. 3,000 are saved. And then we have more saved, or, or sorry, then we have more prayer. They devote themselves to prayer. And then look at Acts 2, verse 44, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. So they pray, the Spirit falls, Peter preaches, people are saved, they pray again, and we see the Lord adding to their number day by day. Again, prayer right there at the central heart of the church and specifically of the mission of the gospel going forth. Look at Acts 4, a couple chapters later. The apostles are arrested. They're, they're preaching in the temple. They're arrested, and then they're released. So they're facing persecution. They're facing persecution. They're being told, stop preaching about Jesus. And here's what they do in Acts 4, verse 23. And when they, the disciples, were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, what do they do? They're facing the first persecution of the church. They go, they gather with the church. And what do, they, what do they do when they're together? Do they say, let's hear an encouraging message on why, you know, the scriptures say, you know, we're going to be persecuted, it's okay. And they could have done that. Is that what they do? No. Look at verse 24. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. In my mind, this is one of the most incredible scenes in the entire book of Acts. They're preaching, they're persecuted. What do they do? They get together to pray. What do they pray for? They pray for boldness to keep preaching. And then the Spirit comes and fills them with boldness and they keep preaching. And people who do not know Jesus are convicted by their preaching and more and more are added day by day. You see the role, the very, very clear role that corporate prayer plays in the mission of God. It's right at the center. In fact, we've already seen this pattern. Prayer precedes giant movements of God. The disciples gather, the church gathers, it prays, and then God does incredible things, saves thousands coming from these prayers of the people. We see it in Acts 10. I don't have that in your notes, but in Acts 10, there's Gentiles praying. And then God sends Peter to preach the gospel, and we see the first Gentiles into the church after prayers. Again, prayer playing the central role. And then look at Acts 12. Peter is preaching, persecution breaks out. Peter gets arrested after James becomes the first, or after James is killed. And then Peter is put in prison. And then look at verse 4. And when he, was, he had seized him, he put him in prison, him being Peter, delivered him to the four squads of the guards to guard him, intending after Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter's in prison. So verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So Peter's in prison, and what happens? Notice a bunch of individual Christians around the area don't just pray. They gather together, and they pray. And if we, we're not going to read the story, but Peter's miraculously delivered from prison. He comes out of the prison, and when he realized, look at, uh, look at the passage, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary the mother, and the mother of John, whose name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So Peter is in prison. The church gathers. The church prays. God answers those prayers. He's delivered. And then he goes to find that they're still together praying. He stumbles upon a prayer meeting. And what does he do? He, he moves on and he continues to preach the gospel. We, we would see in the rest of the book of Acts if we kept reading again. See the central role that praying together, not just your individual prayer lives, but praying together as a church, being a praying church. See the central role that that is playing in the mission of God. I got two more. Again, I want us saturated by how clear this is in the scriptures. Look at Acts 13. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, and while they were worshiping God and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work of which I have called them. Verse three, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And basically the rest of the book of Acts after chapter 13 is gonna be Paul traveling throughout the entire known world preaching the gospel. And here is him being sent off. And what is happening when the Holy Spirit says, send Paul? Send the missionary of the church out to reach the gospel in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What's happening? The, the church in Antioch is gathered together and they're praying. 
a prayer meeting results in the greatest missionary of the church going out and then later on writing the majority of our New Testament to those churches that he has planted. All of that comes from the church gathered together praying God does incredible things when his churches get together and pray. One more. Paul, on his second missionary journey, is with Silas. They're preaching the gospel in Philippi. They're arrested. Verse 16, about midnight, Paul and Silas, after being beaten and put in prison, were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everybody's bonds were unfastened. And then, uh, I don't have it there, but the jailer uh, wants to kill himself because he thinks everyone's going to escape. But Paul stops him and he asks, what must I do to be saved? We see that there in the next verse. And they say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of God to him and all who were in his house. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with the entire household that he had believed in God. Again, It seems like the mission is being squandered. They're beaten, they're in prison, and what do they do? They pray, and a miraculous earthquake comes, opens every prison door, and they don't run away. They don't escape. In fact, it results in the church of Philippi being planted. The jailer and his whole household being converted. Again, you see prayer precedes these massive movements of God and the mission of God going forward. So again, just with that little survey, again, I could show you more stories. Notice some very, very important things. Number one, notice the identity of the church. The church is a people of prayer. You can't read the scriptures and not say a key mark, a key identity maker of the church of the living God, of the church of Jesus Christ, is they are a people of prayer. There are people who gather together and pray, and God moves in huge ways as a result of their prayers. And that's the second thing I want you to notice. Number two, notice the fuel of the mission of God throughout the book of Acts is the prayers of his people. The gospel goes forth when the church gathers together to pray. And notice We don't just see a bunch of individuals praying by themselves. We see the church getting together and praying corporately, praying together. And then notice number three, I think a huge correction for us just in our culture. Notice the content of their prayers. Notice the content of their prayers. They are praying earth-shaking prayers. Big prayers like in the midst of persecution, in the midst of people trying to kill us and stop this message, fill us with boldness and keep saving thousands, God. And he does. We don't see the content of the prayers of Silas and Paul in prison, but you can imagine they're praying, deliver us from this. And God does. We don't see the content of the prayer meeting when Peter's in prison, but we can imagine it's deliver Peter from prison right after James has just been killed. Don't let this persecution stomp out the church. In fact, let the gospel go forth. And that's exactly what happens. They pray big prayers. Now, I want to be careful here. God cares about your neighbor's dog's sickness. God cares about your grandma's knee pain. But if that's the primary prayers that come from us, 
We just think about what are problems in the world or let's be more honest, what are slight inconveniences around me that I would like God to fix? If that is the majority of our prayers, I I just want you to notice how far away from the church and the scriptures that is. See the big earth-shaking content of their prayers. William Carey had a, a very famous line, expect big things from God and attempt big things for God or great things for God. You can apply that to prayer. Pray big things to God. Pray massive prayers and expect the God of the universe to answer. Expect God to answer your earth-shattering prayers because he does. He has and he does. That is who he is. He is for his own glory. He wants the name of his son magnified. And so when you pray massive prayers that the world would come to know him, that our city would praise his glorious name, the Father answers. Robert Murray McShane has a quote about prayer that I love. He says this, Oh, believing brethren, what an instrument is this which God has put into your hands. Prayer moves him that moves the universe. God has put in your hand the instrument of prayer. Prayer moves him that moves the universe. Is that the main content of your prayers? Are your prayers earth-shaking? Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, said, I'd rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. I'd rather teach one man to pray than 10 men to preach. Is that the content of our prayers? So just notice that. Again, I I want the Bible to do the correcting. I want the scriptures to form how we view this subject. And we could keep on reading. We could keep looking at more passages in Acts. And let me just tell you, as someone who loves church history, every revival I've ever found in church history, and that's that's, that's not a hyperbolic statement, every revival I have ever studied or discovered throughout the history of the church is preceded by prayer. Prayer always comes before massive movements of revival, whether it's the Moravian missions in Germany, the missionaries going throughout the whole world, that was preceded by a prayer meeting that lasted 100 years. The First Great Awakening with George Whitfield and John Wesley and Jonathan Edward preaching the gospel and tons are getting saved all over New England in the early American years that's preceded by prayer. The church is gathering together and praying. And in fact, Jonathan Edwards, who saw the Great Awakening, experienced it himself and in his church, he was kind of like a theologian of the Great Awakening. And one of the things he points out is when revival comes, it's always preceded by prayer. So the revival comes from prayer and the revival itself gives birth to more prayer, more prayer more prayer meetings. So it's both from prayer and it results in more prayer. Uh, Robert McShane, whenever he, his church experienced revival, they would have 900 people gathering in uh, their church to pray every night for months because this revival is being experienced and that just fueled more prayer, right? So again, Edwards, as, a, as he was studying, what is it, what's, what's happening here in this revival in this first great awakening? He wrote a book and I have the title in your notes, He wrote a book kind of thinking through uh, what's going on. He wanted to, again, probe uh, what is happening. 
in our midst as we see people being saved. And he wrote a book called A Humble Attempt to Promote Explicit Agreement and Visible Union of God's People and Extraordinary Prayer for the Revival of Religion and Advancement of Christ's Kingdom on Earth Pursuant to Scripture, scripture Promises and Prophecies Concerning the Last Times. Okay, so... We've gotten better at titles since then, but he's, again, what is happening here? And what he said, I have a quote there for you. Look how, look how close to the book of Acts Edwards is. He says, it is God's will through his wonderful grace that the prayers of his saints should be one great and principal means of carrying on the designs of Christ's kingdom in the world. When God has something very great to accomplish for his church, it is his will that the extraordinary prayers of his people should precede it. When God has something very great to accomplish for his church, it is his will that the extraordinary prayers of his people should come before it, should precede it. That's exactly what we've seen in Acts. Every time there's a massive movement, it's come after the church gets together and prays. Okay, so we see that pattern throughout the scriptures. We could keep tracing that pattern throughout church history. Get together as a church and pray because that is how the gospel goes forth. That is the fuel for the mission of God. And I want to look at the scriptures with one more thing. I want to look at Paul's letters. Now, if that pattern doesn't convince us enough, let's look at uh, these commands that Paul gives us to pray. Again, so we'll read the, Paul's epistles and we'll see these commands to pray. And I think our reaction is we take those individual. Pray without ceasing. And we think, okay, how can I, the individual Jared Lawson, pray without ceasing? But notice, that letter isn't written to an individual. It's written to the church in Philippi or the church in Colossae. What's Paul saying? He's saying, you church, you parkway, pray together without ceasing. You parkway, devote yourselves to prayer. He's writing to a corporate Body. Jim Hamilton, a pastor and a professor at Southern, uh, says this. Though we may fail to notice this in our individualistic age, the Bible often assumes that God's people will pray together. And that's exactly what Paul's writing to. So notice in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes for the, the church to pray corporately so that his mission, the mission of God, might go forth. 2 Corinthians 1.10. He delivered us from the deadly peril and delivered and he will deliver us. On him, we have our hope that he will deliver us again. Verse 11, you also must help us. How? How is the Corinthian church meant to help Paul as Paul's traveling through the known world, preaching the gospel and being delivered from danger? How are they to help him? Help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So what's Paul saying? He's saying, hey, church in Corinth, I'm going throughout the world preaching the gospel and being persecuted. Will you help me? And he doesn't ask for financial aid, although he does that in other places. He doesn't ask for anything except for what? Prayer. Will you, Corinthian church, get together and pray corporately for my mission so that I can praise God that his mission is continuing to go forth on the backs of prayer, on the backs of a praying church. And then again, I have here the commands to pray. We see throughout scripture, these are all given to the church corporately. Romans 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. That is to be church in Rome. Colossians 4, continue steadfastly in prayer. Again, that's to the church 
in Colossae, not to an individual. First Thessalonians, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. That's to the church in Thessalonica. That's not to an individual, right? There's no such thing in Paul's mind of a church praying too much. Have a constant 24-7 prayer meeting. <laughs> pray without ceasing together as a church. And then we see in Ephesians 6, I won't read it, but we see in this spiritual warfare that we have in this life, this war against the powers of darkness, the main weapon for that war is prayer. Praying at all times with prayers and supplication, right? That's how we fight the war against the enemy, against the dominion of darkness, okay? So again, look at how central prayer in the life of the church is. It is our breath. It is our very heartbeat. It's what we're absolutely desperately dependent on. It's the communion with our Father, and it is how the gospel, it is how the mission of God is carried forward. So let's do some self-examining. Let's ask the hard questions. How are we doing, Parkway, as a praying church? Does Parkway look like the church in the book of Acts? When we read Acts 4, do we say, that looks a little bit like us? That's how we respond when scary things are happening that seem to be persecution. Let's be honest, I haven't been beaten for preaching the gospel yet, so we're nowhere near Acts 4. But do we gather together and pray for boldness that we would keep on preaching that the gospel would go forward? Does that look like us? Do we look like Acts 12 where there's this massive need? Is our instinct, let's gather together and let's pray for God to bring deliverance and God to bring answered prayer. Do we look like the church in Colossae or in Philippi or in Thessalonica? Do we look like the constant in prayer church? Do we look like the constant praying without ceasing church, praying at all times? Is that what we look like? Paul Miller, uh, who wrote uh, several books on, on prayer, says, the way you judge the spiritual health of a church isn't by the number of attendants on a Sunday morning. It's by the number of attendants to their prayer meeting. It's by how many people show up to the prayer meeting. That's how you, that's how you judge the spiritual health of a church. And so let me ask you, why would that be a big problem for Parkway? Because we have no prayer meeting. <laughs> There's no prayer meeting for people even to attend. So again, have we missed something? as a church? Have we misunderstood the very nature of what does it mean to be the church of the living God? Do we have this communion at the center? Do we have this desperate dependence at the center? Do we ha have we misunderstood the mission of God? Do we think the gospel will go forth without much prayer? Because I think the book of Acts would scream at us, that's very foolish. I think the rest of the New Testament would scream that as well. And so if the scriptures are so clear, why don't we pray? Why is this not a mark of our church as well? It might be we just don't expect God to move. We've gotten a little comfortable. We've, we've misunderstood. We, we think, you know, God will add to our numbers day by day in a different way rather than a result of us praying. Maybe we don't think, maybe we think Jonathan Edwards is wrong. That massive movements of God, that massive revival comes after prayer. Maybe it's God, not God's will that uh, when he moves in a very special way, the prayers of his people precede it. Maybe we've misunderstood the mission altogether. Maybe the mission just isn't a priority to us. We're just more focused on our security and our comfort 
And if the gospel goes forth, great, but that's not a, you know, a primary thing in our minds. Or maybe most tragically, maybe we've forgotten our desperate dependence on God. There is a terrifying story in the book of Ezekiel where Ezekiel sees the temple of the living God and he sees all the priests attending to the temple and he sees the spirit of God leave. He sees the presence of God leave the temple to where it's just a building not filled by the very presence of the living God. And you know what changes? Nothing. No priest noticed. They just keep going about their business. God has left and nobody has noticed. And so... If, let's just ask the tough question, if God left this place, would we notice? If God took his hand off of Parkway, would we just keep on preaching, going about our business, or would everything fall apart? Have we built, based off of man's ability and skill and things like that, are we desperate? God, if you don't do stuff, nothing's going to happen. If you don't move, we can't breathe. We won't have life. Are we desperately dependent or have we forgotten that we are desperately dependent? We're in this season as a church where we're just talking about, you know, this is a new era. This is a new chapter of Parkway. We've got a new lead pastor, a new mission statement. We're rebuilding towards, moving towards health. And let me just (laughs) warn us. Let this teaching be kind of just a good, strong, stern warning. If prayer does not go at the very heart of all the things we want to rebuild, we're in trouble. Or at least will be a far cry from the very clear pattern we see in the book of Acts. Thomas Kidd, who's a professor at Midwestern, says this, With all due regard to church's individual circumstances, it's hard to justify the lack of congregational prayer in many of today's churches or the relegation of prayer to an obligation sidelight. People need pastoral and congregational prayer for the burdens they bring to the church. And whatever the church's brilliant programming, the power of God alone will fulfill the church's mission and foster revival. No element of worship better signals Christians' dependence upon God than prayer. Pastors who put prayer front and center each week are demonstrating that dependence in a very practical and biblical way. Okay, so that is the church as a people of prayer. I'm just showing you, again, the church throughout church history, but especially in the scriptures, prayers at the very heart. Let's look at the third. What do we pray for? What do we pray for? Again, this is, I, we, we highlighted praying big prayers when we were looking at the book of Acts, and so I just want to resaturate us with that. Look at the big prayers we see throughout the scriptures. So when you're thinking about, okay, let's pray. You've convinced me that we should gather and pray. Now, what do we do when we gather? What should we pray for? And I think big prayers. Again, have that McShane quote in your head. Prayer moves him who moves the universe. Have William Carey in your mind. Expect big things. Expect great things from your God. And so pray like in Acts 4, big, bold prayers. John Stott a very famous preacher of the 20th century has this uh, famous quote where he says, I remember some years ago visiting a church incognito. I sat in the back row. And when when it came to the pastoral prayer, so on a Sunday morning, the pastor got up to pray for the whole church. It was led by a lay brother because the pastor was on holiday. So he prayed that the pastor might have a good holiday. 
Well, that's fine. Pastors should have good holidays. Second, he prayed that a lady member of the church who was about to give birth to a child, that she might have a safe delivery, which is fine. Third, he prayed for another lady who was sick, and then it was over. And that's all there was. It took about 20 seconds, and I said to myself, a village church with a village God. They have no interest in the world outside. There was no thinking about the poor, the oppressed, the refugee, the places of violence, world evangelization. John Stott is just quite simply pointing out, you can see how big someone's God is by the prayers that they pray. If you're praying big prayers, it's because you expect your God to answer them and answer big prayers. If you just keep your prayers tiny, again, that's fine. It's fine to have a good holiday. It's fine to have a safe delivery. It's fine for sick people to be healed. You should pray those prayers. But if that is 99% of your prayers, 90% of your prayers, even 60% of your prayers, your God might be too small. God might be, the God who said, let there be light, might be too small in your eyes. And if you don't know where to start, so so pray big prayers. If you don't know where to start, pray the Bible. Start with the Bible. Look at how Paul prays for the Ephesians in Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. I won't read those, but they're in the notes. Pray Matthew 28. Father, help us to obey your son's great commission. Help us to make disciples of all nations. Help us to go from our Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Send missionaries from this church. Plant churches overseas in unreached contexts even. Send churches. Let us plant churches in McKinney and Allen and Frisco and Melissa to the ends of the earth. Do big things from our little church because you're a big God. You could pray that. You could pray Acts 2. Pray that this church, that Parkway, would look like the church in Acts 2 that would be devoted to the scriptures and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer, that all would come upon our souls, that the Lord would add to our number day by day because the gospel keeps going out. Start with the scriptures. That's a great place to start. We'll have a whole lesson on how to pray the Bible, by the way. You want to pray big prayers, you could start with our, you could, you could go to our mission statement. Pray for Parkway. Father, I pray that we would be a church that glorifies you and makes disciples of your son. I pray that disciples are constantly growing in this place and that those disciples delight in him. They don't just begrudgingly obey him. They love Jesus as their supreme treasure. They are satisfied in him more than anything else in the universe. Pray for our church that we would display his love, that people would come in and see how our church loves one another and say, Jesus must be here. These must be Jesus' people. Pray that we would go into our neighborhoods and declare him to the world, that there would just be constant evangelism, that boldness would fill us like in Acts 4, and we would keep preaching the gospel. That's what our mission statement is meant to orient us towards. You could pray that. Pray that it wouldn't just be a cool statement about what we're about, but rather who we are, that it would be our very DNA. You could pray our mission statement and then pray for church need. Again, I I don't think it's bad to pray for grandma's knee or safe traveling somewhere or anything like that. James 5 tells us when someone's sick, bring him to the elders, have them pray for him. Okay, with staff all the time, we'll get a text from some staff, hey, so-and-so is sick, we'll stop and we'll pray. We want that to be a, a mark of our church. The elders are reading through the directory in one of our elder meetings once a month, and we pray for everybody in the church, right? You could pray for me. That's not a bad thing, but if it's the only thing, again, I think we're missing the big prayers that we see the church pray. And then lastly, okay, how do we do it? So that was what we pray for, and now next, 
how do we become a community of prayer? If we've seen the need, if we've seen the pattern throughout the book of Acts, how does Parkway walk in those same footsteps? So I have broken down different sections. First, I have kind of the hard issues that need to be fixed. Number one, you need to become convinced that this is, in fact, the biblical pattern. You need to become convinced of kind of those big three of the fellowship of prayer, of the dependence of prayer, and of the power for the mission of prayer, that it is your breath, that it is your communion, and it is how uh, you, how the mission of God goes forth. You have to become convinced that this isn't just, again, another duty you have to do, another rule you have to follow, but it's central to who we are as a church. Next, I mean, there's, there's things that we could do as a church. We could gather as a church. Prayer meeting has been something that has been central throughout church history, and it's, it's unfortunately become far less common. It's fallen off the map in a lot of ways, I think, because we've, again, lost that idea of desperate dependence. But every time, again, the book of Acts, we're just seeing prayer meetings everywhere. And they always come before a big movement of the gospel. Prayer meeting, another thing that's been common throughout church history is what's called a pastoral prayer. So on a Sunday, we sing worship like we do, we hear a sermon preached like we do, we take communion as we do. And another element of kind of the Sunday gathering, the order of service, would be a pastor getting up and praying a prayer as the church. He uses words like, we, Father, ask you. And we pray for five minutes, eight minutes, 10 minutes as a church because when we gather together, that's central. We're dependent on God to move. So we want to corporately ask him to move. We can do that in our church gatherings. And then next I have what you could do kind of outside of formal church gatherings. So you want to think about, you could think about this as smaller church gatherings or whatever, but I mean, the easiest thing is quite literally you get together with other members of the church throughout the week and pray. You have a prayer meeting where prayer isn't just kind of holy transitions. You know, you're there for the book club. You'll start it with prayer, of course, but then that's the only role that prayer plays. It's kind of like the blessing you want to saturate the, the book study with, which that's not a bad thing. But you could soak the whole thing in prayer. You could say, let's pray for 30 minutes and talk about the book for 30 minutes. Let's have an actual prayer meeting where we're going before the Lord. You could make prayer meetings normal. If you said, hey, you want to come over and pray? I imagine the person you're talking to would say, and what else? (laughs) And then what? What's the main thing we're going to do? I think that would be a pretty common response. I might be wrong, but I think that's also a result of, or I think that's telling for how do we naturally view prayer. It's the transition thing. It's our holy transitions before we get to the importance of rather than the main thing. Again, what do you see in the book of Acts? They're getting together to pray because they believe God is hearing them and answering their prayers. And so you could gather together for prayer meetings throughout the week. You could combine Bible studies and book studies with prayer. Again, you could give 30 minutes to both things. You could pray big prayers and not, you know, again, working beyond just the let's share requests for 30 minutes and then pray for five. (laughs) Rather have written out things that you're already going to pray for, pray big prayers together. You could get creative. You could combine outreach uh, with prayer. So imagine, you know, you could get together with three other people and say, hey, why don't we for this next uh, semester, for the fall, 
why don't we really begin to try to talk to our neighbors about the gospel or try to talk to the, you know, the, the other moms at the park during play dates about the gospel or try to talk to people at work about the gospel. So you, you're getting together with this kind of evangelistic goal and then say, when we meet together, why don't we meet twice a month and when we meet, we share stories of how that's going and we pray. We pray acts for like prayers. God, fill us with boldness. I pray that the gospel would bear fruit. I pray that it would take root in people's hearts. And so you're not just saying, let's evangelize and meet for accountability. You're saying, let's pray and beg God and then walk in faith that he's actually gonna hear us and answer our prayers. Okay, you could do that. And then you can always start with your family. You can always start with the people in your home, praying with your spouse regularly, praying with your kids regularly. So all this comes down to just be intentional, be creative. Think about what are the relationships I already have during the week and how can I overlay those with prayer? So personally what I do is I'm I'm reading books with a bunch of people uh, in the church and things like that or different types of discipling relationships and I just try to weave prayer into those. Uh, So me and, and one guy in the church will read books together and then go sit in my car and pray. And you might think that's awkward, and sure, it is. And here's, what, here's the very important thing uh, that helps get over it. <laughs> uh, it's weird to sit in a car with the air conditioning going on and praying for the first time, maybe, and then you just get over it, right? It's always weird. You're, you're talking to a God you can't see. Prayer in itself might be a little bit strange if you're just looking at it from the outside perspective, but get over it, right? Get over the awkwardness and pray. Get creative. Think how you can weave those things together, I'm having lunch with someone, okay, how can we have lunch and then carve off 15 minutes at the end to go sit in the car and pray or go into my office and pray or something like that. Play dates, how can you overlap play dates with prayer, normal hangouts with prayer? Get creative, again, there's a guy that I pray with in the church and we couldn't meet for a particular week and so we Zoomed. I sat in Starbucks and prayed with him over Zoom as he was at work in his office uh, during lunch, or actually it was before lunch. Just get creative, right? Go through the directories. That's why we give them to you. Pray for one another. Pray for the church. Do that with your spouse, okay? And lastly, the last thing I have is you can always pray right now. I think Kevin DeYoung says that in his book, uh, Crazy Busy. You always think like, oh yeah, 30 minutes. Those are big chunks of times. I'm really busy. I don't know if I can carve that out. But you can always pray now. Uh, there's tons of times that, you know, me and Lee, Lee and I will be talking or Carl and I will be talking. We'll get a text message uh, of some need in the church and we can say, oh man, that's so sad. And what should we do about that? And then hopefully uh, one of the things that does often happen, which is growing and, and, and more encouraging is somebody will always stop and say, why don't we just pray for them right now? And so we'll stop our conversation. We'll spend a few minutes praying for that situation. Then we'll think about what to do. Or that'll happen during a staff meeting. We'll hear about you know, this conversation that was concerning or whatever, and we'll stop and we'll pray. You can always pray right now. You don't always have to have the perfect schedule for it, okay? So there's some just practical how things. Get together. I mean, it's, it's very simple. Get together with other members of this church and pray. Pray for this church. Pray that the gospel would go forth. Pray that we would be a place that glorifies and loves and enjoys Jesus Christ. Pray for uh, that we would be a people who are desperately dependent on the Spirit's movement. Pray for our city. Pray for the gospel to go forth, that good churches be planted. Pray for the needs of the church. Do that with others as well as your personal quiet time, okay? 
So let me pray to close us. No one's in this room, so there's no books to give out and no Q&A, but I love you, church, all those who are listening to this. Let me pray for us that we would be a church of prayer and we will be done. Father, we see this all throughout your scriptures. We see this command to us. We see this pattern laid before us. We see it throughout church history. And I pray uh, that you would again move in us to pray first. As your disciples asked, Lord, teach us to pray. I pray that right now, Lord, that you would teach our church to pray, that it would be just as much a mark of our church as it was the church in Jerusalem, as it was the church in Antioch, as it was in Thessalonica and Philippi, that we would be constant in prayer. We would be getting together and praying big, earth-shaking prayers and seeing our big, earth-shaking God move in power for your own glory and for the glory of your Son. I pray that in his wonderful name. Amen.